years after forfeiting their right to the host the 1940 Olympic Games, Japan won its bid for 1964 at a time when the country's boom had just kicked off and Tokyo was still caught between devastation and recovery. By the time 1964 came around, visitors found not a war-scarred city, but a modern metropolis with a focus on remarkable sporting achievements, heartthrobs, sex controversies, and one of the greatest films ever made about sports. Welcome to Tokyo 1964. So Chris, this is the second time we've attempted to record this Tokyo uh, podcast. Yeah, and the first time around, uh, it didn't really work out. The blame is purely on me and my, well, I was going to say shoddy internet in the place I'm staying in Iceland in the first week of my trip there. But actually, there was no internet so uh, at this Airbnb. Yep. And so mobile data hotspots are not really sufficient for a thing like this, particularly in the middle of nowhere near Selfoss in Iceland. Yeah, but it, but I suppose it was fishing um, that we made our second attempt uh, today, the 8th of July, the day that Tokyo has announced a six-week state of emergency due to the coronavirus. So... You know, it, it was all it all fit in well. Actually, I haven't heard that news. So fantastic. Breaking news for me <laughs> on this podcast. What does this mean, do you Ex- think, for the game? Exclusive, exclusive Olympopod news. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think from what I glanced at before I came onto this call, it means that you can't get alcohol in restaurants. Okay. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's other things as well that um are important, but uh, that seems to be the main one. I mean, they're not letting anyone in other than athletes anyway, so... Yeah, yeah, true. And, well, we all know not drinking alcohol is the key to not getting coronavirus. So, anyway, on to... uh, Back to 1964. This was in Tokyo, and it did happen eventually, but as I mentioned in the intro, it was after a 24-year delay. Yeah. Tokyo, what's up with you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're not going to get it awarded a third time I'm going to say that um, It, yeah anyway look they had their delay a lot of stuff was happening in the world in the 30s and 40s so but yeah this one was described by the Times as the science fiction Olympics they really wanted to show how far they'd come and how Tokyo was the city of the future um, a lot of new technology in this game's There were touchpads in the pool. So for the first time, it wasn't just done by sight. Oh, which was a big controversy in 1960, right? There was uh, one one race in particular where uh, one of the swimmers got clearly screwed over. So that's not an issue anymore. Nope. Um, And a lot of very fancy uh, stopwatches and clocks. So well timed. Also, they really, they really did a do over of Tokyo itself. Uh, bulldozed a lot of the areas that weren't too desirable. Um, quotes that there were at least a hundred deaths and two thousand injuries in the rebuild of Tokyo for the Olympics. Oh, were they related to certain things, or was it just a, a, a like, like the builders that was thrown out? Yeah, like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Very, very. Um, World Cup vibes, mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And they coincided the Olympics with their, the launch of their first bullet train. Yeah. To transport spectators from Shinosaka to Tokyo Central Stations. Oh, and one more fact to make it science fiction-y. Um, the opening ceremony, first opening ceremony to feature electronic music. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Electrotronic. Electrotronic. Uh, <laughs> Not just was it like advanced technology uh, on and off the track, but also the capturing of the games, as I mentioned in the intro as well about the film, was Kon Ichikawa's Tokyo Olympiad. And according to many people, one of the greatest films ever made about sports. Uh, it seems like the Olympic Games always push the boundaries here because we've had it a, a few times mm-hmm. on Olympipod. Uh, for example, the 1936 Games, despite it being a huge bit of Nazi propaganda, was uh, revered for its great filmmaking. And uh, this which was, I think, a bit more about the sport. It took a while to get into it. I have to say, it took about 30 minutes before we saw any sport. But once it happened, it was beautifully captured. Uh, And I think as we go through this podcast, I'll I'll jump in and out of some of my thoughts uh, from those uh, the the film as we talk about the athletes it captured. The film itself captured, I think, pretty much all of the sports in one way or another. It's focused very much on the track and field Uh, for about half of it and then it was like boom 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 here's all the other sports uh, as kind of the olympics coverage in general does and uh, so it really started with uh, with bob hayes and i think he's somebody worth talking about he won the 100 meter title in a time of 10.06 seconds within the final equaling the world record he actually set a quicker time in the semi-final 9.91 but that was wind assisted so it didn't count and uh, what I found funny about that was the film narrator in the final asks, how much faster can a man run? Well, he had run quicker in the semi-final, but it was wind assisted. Uh, and also it turned out they could run quite a bit faster eventually. What were they to know? Hayes was fantastic uh, for his time. He also ran the uh, or set the record for the fastest relay leg in the four by 100 meters. I believe it is the current fastest relay leg but i think recording individual relay legs is quite difficult to do overall so i don't know how much weight you can actually put into that yeah so the the relay that uh hayes set his record time in was his final track race ever and when he ran uh, returned home he signed a pro-american football contract with the dallas cowboys which uh is is now like we we had a phase in Olympic history when athletes would go back home and become film stars. Now they're going back home to the US and becoming NFL players. So he would uh, be a wide receiver and a punt returner and became one of the greatest players uh, in the game. And he really revolutionized things like pass defense and man-to-man coverage because they were so bad at dealing with him. So he his kind of his speed really revolutionized and ushered in a, a new phase in the sport. And he is the only athlete to possess both an Olympic gold medal and an NFL Super Bowl ring, which he won in 1972. He, it all kind of went downhill then for him. Unfortunately, he did uh, serve a two-year jail term for drug crimes. And that then sent me down in a bit of a rabbit hole, Ruth on the brilliant website Olympedia because they have a section on 
Olympians who went to jail. <gasps> I can't believe you went down that rabbit hole and didn't well, send me a link. I oh my God, this is... I'll, go- te- I'll tell oh. you why I didn't send you a link because, well, it was funny for about three minutes. So, <laughs> well, first of all, I saw a few names which we uh, are accustomed to. For example, our very first marathon winner, Spiridon Lewis, he was there. Uh, we spoke about him and his uh, crimes if you go all the way back to the very first Olympopod. So if you haven't listened to that, which a Danish comedian in Iceland told me yesterday, she listened to the most recent one. So if you're doing that, make sure to go back to the very start and then build your way up. Vasilius Papagiorgiopoulos was a Greek athlete in the 1972 and 1976 games. In 2013, he was sentenced to life in prison for embezzling 18 million euro during his time as the mayor of Thessaloniki. That's some serious time. Do you think think it's like life in prison now where you can go out on parole after 17? Well, I think probably he uh, will be dead by then, yeah. And okay, maybe it's more okay. like life in prison, okay. you know, your retirement home prison. I I don't know. I didn't look too much into it. Uh, good question, though. But then it, uh, it got to Oscar Pistorius, and I figured that it's not such a fun topic after all. Uh, so maybe one to dive into in your own time. But uh, yeah, we can we can stop that right here. Was there anything on the boxing, Chris, in your uh, film? Uh, there was a bit on the boxing. Part of the second half of the film where it basically just showed flashes of every sport. Okay, well, it, it was quite a lively affair, the boxing. And it's also the least enjoyable sport to go see in the Olympics, in my honest opinion. Have, well, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Having, having, so- been, having been at <laughs> Katie Taylor's quarterfinal against the British woman who I now can't remember the name of in London 2012, I find it hard to agree with that. But that, I think, was a very one-off occasion. Yeah, I think if you've yeah. got skin in the game, it's fine. But it's just, yeah, I, I, it's all, it's, all, I just didn't understand any of it. Like I didn't understand any of the rules, and I thought the rules were fairly yeah. self-explanatory until I was there in the stadium yeah. in Rio and just going, I have no <laughs> idea what's happening. I have no idea why this person has won okay. over this person. Anyway, two boxers were handed down bans for punching referees. Um, the Argentinian got uh, the Argentinian Torino got three years for punching the ref, um, but Spain's Valentin Loren got handed down a lifetime ban for absolutely beating the shit out of the referee. But uh, South South Korea's uh, Chao Dong Ki was more gentlemanly in his ungentlemanly protests, and uh, when he was disqualified from his one for punching below the belt too often. Uh, he simply sat down on his stool in his corner for 51 oh, minutes until he was removed. What was going on? Like, what were the referees doing? I don't know. I mean, like, nowadays... Let's... Oh, let, uh... let's not victim blame here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think, yeah, chances are they had it coming. But, yeah, can't be sure. It weren't there at the time. <laughs> Big words from Chris there. (laughs) If in 2016 the referees and judges couldn't get their shit together, I I hesitate to to imagine that they had any better in 1964. Yeah, okay, fair, fair. Um, It it does seem that um, a a few of these disqualifications were for, you know, 
open-handed slaps across and face, like mm. yeah. So, but 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 I understand what I you're think saying. It's, uh, maybe it's an issue of like I, you know. Boxers and referees coming from around the world and they all have their different styles and maybe different variations of the rules, uh, believing that, you know, this is okay. A bit of a slap across the face with an open glove. Uh, maybe that's okay in some places. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe it is. Um, but we've already kicked out boxing from our Olympics, so it's yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anyway, there were some good stories from the boxing, were there? Wasn't just all disqualifications. Not quite. Uh, we had, uh, after uh, having Cassius Clay, uh, later to be known as Muhammad Ali, in the last pod, it's only fair to mention Joe Frazier, who, uh, well, he was going to become one of the great heavyweight champions of all time, but... Back in 1964, he really had no business being there because he was actually beaten in the Olympic trials by a man called Buster Mathis, a a fighter who was a far better amateur overall. But Mathis had broken his thumb while training for the Olympics and Joe Frazier, smoking Joe, got a chance to replace him, which is quite ironic because in the semifinals of the Olympics, Joe Frazier then broke his own thumb. (sighs) He was not going to be denied, however. He didn't tell anyone outside of his team. He had the thumb taped up and basically fought with one hand in the final to win the gold medal. Good man. Good man. Good man indeed. And he would go on to become one of the great heavyweight champions. Uh, It was uh, a lot of people find it's kind of sad that he was in the same era as Muhammad Ali because he didn't get the same kind of attention and acclaim. But uh, Frazier then won a heavyweight world championship in 1970 and uh, he fought Muhammad Ali three times in three really uh, memorable and historic battles. Uh, the first one, 1971, was the fight of the century, uh, which Frazier won by a decision after 15 rounds. He'd go on to lose the next two fights. Uh, the final one, known as the Thriller in Manila, is usually known as the greatest ever heavyweight fight. So the, probably the two best heavyweights of all times in back-to-back Olympic Games. So that actually now, his broken thumb leads in very well to a story I told at the start of our last recording of this Mm. Olympopod, which is now um, a lost episode, um, where I made a bold, bold claim that I'd broken my foot the night before. We're now recording this a week later. I can confirm I didn't break my foot. But at the time, there was a very real possibility that I possibly had. Well, Chris, look, uh, the road to Tokyo was always going to be a bumpy one. It's a lot of preparation and training that goes into every single Olympopod. Um, I have to read some really big books. Some of them are hardback. Um, I have to do... A lot of googling i have to go onto wikipedia and read like multiple articles so you know it, it's it's really tough uh, it's tough on the body um and yesterday after i'd completed a particularly grueling um olympopod preparation um i went to the freezer to get some rehydration and as i moved my bottle of rosé an ice pack fell out of the freezer and now obviously there it was not for naught that I was on the under 15 Leinster cricket team 
I went to catch. And I did catch, left-handed too. I wasn't prepared for how cold it was. So I dropped it directly on my foot. And there was a bit of a cracking noise, which the internet tells me is not ideal. Luckily, I had an ice pack ready to get the swelling down. And now it's just, you know, two or three blackened toes. Um, so look, we do this, we do this to our bodies so that we can, every two to weeks, we can produce high quality Olympopod podcastery. And if I have to potentially break a few toes to get a podcast out, you know, that's, that's what I have to do. Chris, that leads very nicely into my hero of this games, which is Al Orsher Jr. Because he, like me and others we've now discovered, had to overcome quite a few injuries to reach Tokyo. Um, he was born in New York. He started his junior athletics career as a sprinter, but that all changed when he was 15 and a discus landed at his feet on the track. Bit apocryphal, but... Mm-hmm. We'll take it. I like it's a good story. Uh, he picked it up and threw it back considerably better than anyone was expecting, Ooh. and so began his uh, discus career. He'd produced an Olympic record at Melbourne and won his first gold. And after that, uh, he said to the journalists, "I'm not quitting till I get five gold." He picked up a second in Rome, despite having been involved in a near fatal car crash the year before. But again, you know, Chris, that seems to have been all the rage at the time. We, we've kind of talked a lot about people's near-fatal car crashes over the last few Olympopods about coming back. So it seems to be a thing that they did at the time. Yeah. Um, but then in the weeks leading up to Tokyo, he'd dislocated a cervical vertebra and torn cartilage on his lower ribcage. And his doc- doctors said to, to him um, that he risked life-threatening internal bleeding if he competed in Tokyo. But you know, Chris, last week I suffered major trauma from mm. a falling ice pack and I came the next morning and I recorded 10 minutes of an Olympopod. Mm. I'm not a quitter and neither was he. So it's just not in our natures. No. He, like me, covered himself in ice packs albeit not falling ones, and bandages. Uh, He took a large number of painkillers and he just went to Tokyo. He arrived on the field with a neck brace and was in an obvious amount of pain throughout. He missed his first two throws. They were not up to his standard. Um, But then on the third attempt, he like completely changed his way of throwing. He went much, much slower and then just absolutely belted it and set a new Olympic record and took the gold. Remarkable. And he didn't die of internal bleeding. Yay! Woo, 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 woo. Though he was ready um, to. He, he was ready to die for internal bleeding. He was ready to, and that's yeah. the main there thing. There was a great quote from him after winning that gold medal. He was like, these are the Olympics. You die for them. He didn't die for them, but he, he was willing to. He didn't. And I was ready to last week um, when I thought, you know, I broke my foot. This week, I haven't broken my foot, but the but the sentiment is still there. I was willing yeah. to. Bravo. I was, willi- I was willing to have a broken foot for the Olympopod. Anyway, he never got his five golds, 
he came out of retirement at 43 for the Moscow Games, uh, but the US boycotted that, so he couldn't couldn't get his goal to his fifth. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a big statement for somebody who can only win one gold per Olympics to say I'm going to win five. Big, big statement. And to be fair to him, he gave it a good go, uh, going well into his forties. But yeah, denied. You know who did get five gold and many more? Michael Phelps. Yes, but do you know? Do you know who was? <laughs> yeah. Well, we had our own Michael Phelps in 1964, the person who actually held the record for the most Olympic medals until Michael Phelps came, and that was Larissa Latinina, the Soviet medal machine. She was um, Ukrainian-born, Latinina, a gymnast who competed in the 1958 World Gymnastics Championships while four months pregnant and took home five gold medals. So Larissa was a badass, and it showed this sort of determination that was going to bring her 18 Olympic medals in her time, a record which stood for nearly half a century until the man you mentioned, Michael Phelps, broke it at London 2012. Latinina finished her Olympic career with nine gold, five silver, and four bronze medals. She was a true legend of the sport. The coach of Romania's uh, Nadia Comaneci, which we'll go into in a later Olympipod, said she was the first real legend of the sport. When all, uh, when she stepped out on the floor, all eyes were on her. She demanded attention and respect. And yeah, she would go on to become a, a coach and lead a very powerful Soviet team over the next decade or so. The last games for the brilliant Larissa Latinina. What was the one event that she uh, never meddled in? The 1956 balance beam in which she finished uh, tied for fourth place. The one regret. <laughs> Ruth! 18 medals! Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> This was our first ever games with a wedding in the Olympic yeah, village. It was. Yeah, Bulgaria's Dian Yorgova and uh Nikolai Protonov. Uh, there was a there was a flash of it as well in the official film. And really I have to say, while watching these films, one of my increasingly favorite parts of them is showing the inside of the athlete's village and the warm-up track and things going on outside looking at these athletes as normal people living their lives and we've mentioned the segregation between men and women before this time no segregation baby they're training alongside each other eating getting married side by side they could be in the same place and get married which is uh, fantastic so a big step forward there in tokyo 1964 and a big contrast from the now disproven media stories of the anti-sex beds of tokyo 2021 but a resource that we actually frequently quote, Jeff Tibbles, The Olympics' Strangest Moments, um, mentions this wedding and then quite bizarrely makes the comment that they exchanged vows in the Olympic Village. That's fine. Then, Baran de Coubertin would surely have approved, particularly as they both weren't men. Wait a second. That wasn't Coubertin's issue. His issue was with women in general. I don't think he, we or anyone else has ever been unclear on this point. It's just he didn't like women. In fact, I think he would have preferred if it was just two gentlemen exchanging vows, I don't know, to remain jolly good sports until death did them part. 
It was another paragraph from Jeff Tibbles right at the end of a completely different story as well, which uh, I'm noticing is a theme in our podcast because we had it last time as well. And this time the wedding is one paragraph at the end of a very serious topic, which is about gender. Yeah. Yeah, I was really like, I was really excited when I came to the chapter called um, The Year of the Sex Olympics. And I was like, whoa! And then that very quickly turned to a, oh. Yeah, not the the sexy sex Olympics. No, not the sexy sex Olympics. We're well past the proper sexy sex Olympics, though we will get a return of the sexy sex Olympics in uh, future years, hopefully. Shall we talk about um, talk about gender a little bit? Yeah, let's get cancelled. And I suppose it is pertinent because the issues that arose during the 1964 Tokyo Games have, with devastating consequences, not been resolved after more than five decades for this, the 2020 one, Tokyo Games. For these contemporary Olympics, we've already had headlines revolving around the Games. Uh, first openly transgender um, athlete, um, New Zealand's Laurel Hubbard, who's going to be competing in the plus 87 kilogram weightlifting category. But then alongside that, we've had the story of two Namibian track and field stars, Christina Mboma and Beatrice Masalingi, who, um, they were, they were told en route to their training camp in Italy, that they would not be allowed to compete in these games due to the two teenagers' natural testosterone levels being too high. And, okay, these these two stories are very, very different, but they're both very important. Personally, I feel that, you know, Laurel Hubbard's story is one to celebrate, but Mbomo and Masalingi's one is one that's like, it is deeply troubling. And it shows how little some things have changed. Like sporting bodies, um, you know, still it seems have the authority to decide what is and was not a woman, even when their conclusions are not based in scientific facts. Like certain sporting bodies have decided on an arbitrary number to be the limit of natural testosterone production to be considered a woman, denying the existence of outliers, first of all. And like, there's a very real eth- ethnic and gender bias in our current medical and scientific research. I don't think it's a coincidence that the majority of women who've been targeted in recent years have been black and brown women, and in particular over the last decade, African women. And I honestly just feel really devastated for now these two young women, 18-year-olds, who are already going through the roller coaster ride of being teenagers and young women and being told that their gender, which is societally accepted, um, culturally accepted, personally accepted, uh, medically never challenged, are now being told by World Athletics that they're not women. And it's also really insulting generally as well as disproven categorically. The testosterone is the only factor which creates a winning athlete. Testosterone obviously can be an incredible competitive advantage, but it's far from the only one. And in fact, like among athletes in both fe- both male and female divisions, um, 
there are huge variations in testosterone across the field. Yeah, I agree. And it's uh, particularly sad nowadays uh, seeing what Castor Semenya is going through as well. A proven great athlete who is having to run outside of her own speciality in order to avoid a ban, uh, which uh, is, is really sad. But to, get, to give context here and why we're talking about it in 1964, there was a couple of, couple of cases here listed by Jeff Tibbles. Uh, one of them is uh, Eva Klobukowska, who won uh, a bronze in the 100 meters and helped Poland win gold in the 4x100. And she was later banned from competition after failing a sex chromosome test. She was found to have one chromosome too many uh, to be declared a woman for the purposes of athletic competition. And then the uh, Soviets, you mentioned there, the sisters Tamara and Irina Press. Uh, that was always people uh, basically judging their looks and also based on the fact that they disappeared from international competition or just after sex tests were introduced at the Olympics in 1968. So there were the, t- there were the topics of the time there. And um, as you said, I don't think uh, we we're in a- any position to be commenting further on that. Yeah, and one of those you mentioned, um, Poland's Eva Klubakowska, uh, would actually not have been disqualified under today's rules, which goes to show that there isn't that much consistency. Um, or maybe it shows they're learning to be charitable and improving very, very slowly. I don't know. I I do sympathise with those female athletes who feel like they're being robbed or at a disadvantage, but they may not be the best ones or the most informed ones to set the rules and set the media discourse. Much like we're probably not the best, as we've said before, we're the most informed ones to discuss this issue. So, yeah, it's just tragic all around. And there's, I don't know, it's just no winners here. Which maybe is why um, Jeff Tibbles ended his sober chapter on this subject with a completely unrelated one about the marriage of these two Bulgarians. Which Pierre de Coubertin would surely have approved of. Any other athletes you really enjoyed in 1964? I'm sure there were. Um, oh, yeah. So we have this Soviet javelin thrower, Elvira Orzolina. She was in Tokyo to defend her Rome gold, but had a very disappointing games and fouled her last four attempts. Uh, she ended up fifth. The utter shame of it. And she was so ashamed, in fact, of her performance that she rushed back to the Olympic Village um, and demanded that the barber shave her head. When the Japanese hairdresser seemed a bit hesitant, maybe a bit confused, she grabbed the clippers off him and shaved herself. After the 1968 Games, she married a Latvian javelin thrower, Janusz Lusic, and their son, Vladimir Lusic, competed in the Sydney and Athens Games. He did not achieve as much as his mother did, but um, there's no record as to whether he lost any hair over it. Okay, so we won't be mentioning him again. Probably not. This is probably his one and only moment of Olympopod glory. I mentioned uh, Larissa Latinina earlier a couple more uh, incredible women at these games dawn frazier who now looking back at it well let's talk about her 
Let's talk about her athletic performances first. She became the first woman to defend the Olympic swimming title and the first swimmer of either sex to win the same event three times, winning the Olympic 100 meters freestyle golds in Melbourne, her home country, 1956, uh, then Rome, and then Tokyo. She also won another gold in the 4x100 freestyle relay and some silvers as well. But her career was also marked by a lot of clashes with Australia's swimming authorities uh, because after Rome in 1960, she was handed a two-year ban for various offences, including not wearing the official team tracksuit to a medal ceremony. So already getting into that kind of business in uh, 1960. And at Tokyo... She defied team orders again wearing an unofficial swimsuit and was caught stealing a souvenir flag near the Imperial Palace, earning her a 10-year ban and prompting her retirement. Uh, Fraser has stayed in the news, particularly in Australia in recent years, mostly for being a big old racist. And uh, about the flag, though, there's, um, there's a bit more news on it before we go to the racism. She was accused of, uh, as she was accused of stealing an Olympic flag from a flagpole outside Emperor Hiro, uh, Hirohito's palace near uh, uh, Hirohito's palace. She was arrested without any charge. And in the end, she was given the flag as a souvenir. <laughs> she later denied having swum the moat to steal the flag. Telling the Times in 1991, there's no way I would have swum that moat. I was terrified of dirty water and that moat was filthy. There's no way I would have dipped my toe into it. Either way, she did try to um, to steal it. And now to Dawn Frazier's racism. Now, um, the vast majority of Australians did not originally come from Australia. I think we all know that. Uh, Their family at one point or another were brought or decided to go there. Dawn Frazier herself did go on one of those genealogy TV series, Who Do You Think You Are?, which traced her heritage back to South America. That hasn't stopped her, however, from saying, look, I'm sick and tired of the immigrants that are coming into my country in 1997. And uh, she also, uh, in 2015, during an interview uh, when asked about the behavior of Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon and Bernard Tomic's comments about Tennis Australia to high-profile and relatively controversial tennis players, uh, Fraser said... They should be setting a better example for the younger generation of this country. If they don't like it, go back to where their fathers or their parents came from. Yeah, um, Kyrgios responded by claiming, uh, describing her as a blatant racist. Eventually, she unreservedly apologized for her comments. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think on, on things like this, we, we, we do give the overall context of the athlete, even when it's not good. And I think in Don Frazier's case, it is good to mention she is a raging racist. Oh, I was feeling sympathetic towards her for stealing a flag because, I don't know, that's the sort of thing I do. But now, well, I'm really reluctant now to mention Don Schollander, just in case it turns out he was also cancelled at some stage. Um, he was the Team USA swimmer who won four gold medals at these games, and he was the heartthrob of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. Mm. He couldn't leave the Olympic village without being mobbed by the love-struck Japanese crowds, and he had to have a special room designated to him by the US Olympic Committee to house all the gifts he received from admirers, including 500 bouquets of flowers. Wow. 
Did he end up becoming a film star? No. <gasps> he actually what didn't. I know. We are obviously past that period in Olympic history. Bring it back, I say. <laughs> if only he was born 20 years earlier. Exactly. He would have been Tarzan. Yeah, well, according to his Wikipedia page, which a long-time listeners will know I consider the font of all legitimate Olympic knowledge, he now runs okay. a real estate company. Good on or him. Or did. Good on him. Good on him. But yet, when I was reading up about him, particularly in David Goldblatt's The Games, I found this absolute nugget, which is that supposedly still to this day, in Japanese language textbooks, the name Schollander is still used as like... A generic English speaker's name. Really? <laughs> yeah. So like when you write a practice letter or a postcard or email or whatever, it often is to like a Mr. Schollinger. Oh, wow. That. Yeah. Or you learn how to say, hello, Mr. Schollinger. How was your trip? That's so cool. What? Is, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Imagine having that kind of impact on society that, what, 50 years later, you're still being mentioned in, uh, or you're still being used in textbooks as like the, uh, the classic foreigner. <laughs> That's brilliant. Love it. Yeah. Now, okay, there is one other person I'd like to mention, and it's Bill Northam, um, an Australian Olympic yachtsman. He and his teammates took gold at these games in the 5.5 meter sailing class at the age of 59. He was a very successful businessman and he decided in his 50s he'd done all he could do at business and it was time to become an Olympian. Ah. Which usually, particularly in the last week or so of monumentally rich knobs paying ridiculous amounts of money to do ridiculous things, I'd be quite against. However, he did, um, you know, at the age of 59, decide to be a yachtsman. And there were a lot of reservations about him, quite a bit of scrutiny particularly about his age and credentials. But I mean, come on, it's a boat. Um, and, and he did answer them, given that he did get the gold. But um, why it's kind of relevant in these days, he was the chairman of the, the Australian branch of Johnson & Johnson. And I was scheduled to get my Janssen vaccine at the end of the week we first began recording this episode. So, woohoo! Basically... Are you thanking him for this personally right now? Well, no, because, Chris, disclaimer, now several weeks later from uh, when we first started recording this, um, I had the opportunity to get two shotty Pfizer, which I took, but also because Bill Northam is now dead and also was only chairman of the Australian branch. So, nah. Maybe I'll find out who the current chairperson of the Irish Pfizer is, and they can be our official Olympic pod shout out. And also, we can see if they would like be interested in becoming an Olympic medalist in Paris. Yeah, maybe I haven't mentioned the film enough. I think thing is I baked it up so much early on, but the I'm glad you mentioned the sailing there because the way they used natural sound in the film was brilliant. I think it really captures a lot, and because they were so close to so much of the action and you know for example in the rowing there's one bit where they have the american cox just uh, sounding a bit like a cartoon character telling the rowers to pull 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 or the birds or the general sounds of people having a miserable time while sailing and i think that uh, being able to capture the sounds of people having a miserable time while sailing is truly a stroke of genius uh, and they managed to capture that in the sailing bit which uh, 
as we know, is very difficult to actually watch. But uh, in these films, they still manage to capture it quite well. Um, a lot of slow motion in the film as well. Uh, I think it captured things like the uh, artistic gymnastics and uh, the uh, women's 80-meter hurdles as well, which I really liked. And again, they used only the sounds from the stadium in the build-up, uh, the sound of one of the hurdles crashing uh, at the very beginning and build up slowly and slowly until the commentary comes in at the final stages. Now, one particular thing, if you're watching the film, and I recommend you do, those of you listening, at the 56-minute mark, a brilliant contrast of the close-ups of saggy chins of men. I say saggy chins, not just one, but saggy chins and then going to collapsed athletes on the track moments later. I'm not exactly sure what the correlation is, but it was brilliant <laughs> either way. What? <laughs> it has to be seen to be believed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I mean, things like the, the women's fencing as well, where the focus is purely on the weapons clashing and the, and the, the, uh, the, the sounds of that, followed by close-ups of the athletes' reactions when they score a point and taking off their masks. Uh, things like that were really good. And I think yeah, uh, Khan Ichikawa did a brilliant job and uh, it's definitely one to watch uh, in your spare time. Well, as we're coming to the end, Chris, um, an amazing first happened at the end of the 1964 Games, which was that Zambia became the first nation to enter as one country and leave as another. So during the opening ceremony, the, the they paraded in with the placards of Northern Rhodesia, but Zambia then declared independence on the 24th of October 1964, the same day as the closing ceremony. So they paraded out proudly as Zambia. That's amazing. And I did see that in the film. They did show it. Yeah. <laughs> a good uh, good for you, Zambia. Yeah. That was shown in the film as well with the placard uh, for Zambia. And overall, the closing ceremony uh, is a much more loosey-goosey affair. Ever since Melbourne, where they said, oh, we should go in side by side, not as countries, uh, they've really pushed it since then. People jumping and dancing around and having a great time. Uh, some of them still marching. Uh, I'll let you imagine which countries they were. But uh, for the most part, all of them just having a big laugh and uh, lovely to see. So, Chris, we're coming to the end. So the classic question, would you have won anything at these games? Would you have meddled? Yeah, no, at this stage, I would be uh, preparing hard for uh, the introduction of handball into the 1972 Olympics, I think. Um, yeah, not sure if I would have meddled in anything, to be honest. No, don't think so. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> but the more important thing, we have to take something out. It's the traditional Olympopod sports swap. Yes, and uh, if you don't mind, I think it's mm -hmm. my my turn to to make the cut. And uh, look, uh, the one I'm taking out is a team sport which uh, I and I think most people care the least about. That hasn't already been removed from the pod. Yeah, because we've already taken out quite a few. Um, we've taken away football, haven't we? Yeah, so this is one that hasn't been taken okay. out, and uh, and basically I'm more also celebrating the fact that it was added to the program for the first time at Tokyo okay. 1964. <laughs> it's volleyball, not the greatest sport anyway. I think it's fair to say no contact, 
the points rarely match up to those that like go viral on the internet and let's be honest the beach version takes all of the attention at the olympics where the uh indoor version kind of just uh floats on by and that's why i'm gonna take it out and like i know if few countries really care about volleyball italy one of them in particular the italians love their volleyball so i'm gonna give them something in return for the sport that i'm putting in and i'm feeling historic and it's not something we were able to mention in rome 1960 because although some Sources reckoned it was a demonstration sport. It didn't really come up in any official records. So I'm going to bring it into the Olympopod program for now. And it is got a couple of names. Calcio Fiorentino, also known as Calcio Storico, historic football. Tell me more. <laughs> Calcio Storico, Ruth, is okay. Uh, something I'm pretty sure you would love, right? I've known about it for quite a while. But there was a, a episode about it on a Netflix series called Home Game, in which they looked at unusual sports last year. And Calcio Storico was one of those. It is an early form of football, like a mixture of soccer and rugby that originated in the 16th century in Italy. It used to be very widely played, but nowadays um, it is played in uh, where it, or it is played in where the sport came from originally at the uh, Piazza Santa Croce in Florence. The idea is basically two sets of people from a certain area of the city. So in uh, Florence, there the city is divided into four sections. Uh, one, the blues, one, the reds, the whites and the greens. They have two semifinals and a final. And the idea of it is you have two sets of people beating the absolute shit out of each other. I was just about to ask this, Chris. I was about to ask, could this be a full contact sport? It is beyond full contact. <laughs> uh, well, there is a ball, though. So the aim is to throw the ball or place the ball into uh, the other end of the pitch. So there's basically a, a goal, which is uh, a few meters tall, and the entire width of the uh, pitch lot of wide so there's two at either end and there's kind of one set of people which do all of the fighting on the front line and then the quick small people trying to dance their way through the fighting and throw the ball into the goal it is absolutely phenomenal <laughs> right uh, it was a big old sport in italy until uh 1930 Sorry, until the uh, until the seventeenth century, uh, but then it came back in nineteen thirty, as it was reorganized as a game of a game in Italy under Benito Mussolini, uh, widely played by amateurs on the streets, and uh, they play three matches a year now in Florence in the third week of June. So from the four quarters uh, of the city. Two teams face each other in one semi-final, two teams in the other. The two winners then face each other a week later in the finals. When they've, when they've when recovered. When they've recovered. When they'd all be discharged from hospital. Exactly. That is quite literally the case. <laughs> and that is why they can only play two games a year. So, um, and I can really recommend watching the, uh, the documentary on it, uh, Home Game. And there's like... There's a special kind of fear as well 
uh, that the athletes are shown to have because it is absolutely brutal. There are severe injuries or there has been death in the past. Um, but nowadays there are some rules which uh, basically uh, prohibit... Which discourage death. death. Yeah. So, you know, uh, for example... So it's more like water polo now. You know, there could be death, but uh, probably unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, but because they don't have the water to slow them down. Sounds like you could put them in so, water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you probably could. Yeah, um, you can't. There's no sucker punches or kicks to the head. Uh, you're also not allowed to have more than one player uh, attack uh, another. So it's one against one the entire time. But but so like, how many people are on a team? Oh, it's about twenty five or thirty. Okay, <laughs> and is there more than one referee or? Is there a pitch, or is it just the city? There, it is. Or? A, it is a pitch. It is a pitch in the okay. in this in the city center. And how I imagine it working is, uh, you no. would have. I think you couldn't have more than eight countries qualify, right? Because I don't think you'd want to make them have more than three matches. Uh, so we have the sixteen days of the Olympics. So you have the quarterfinals on the first or second day. Uh, a week later, the semifinals, and then on the final day the final i think it could be a great sport and one in which would be i mean despite it being very much an italian and a a, a, fl- a sport in florence right now i think it's one that a lot of countries could, could get on board with team usa would want to get oh, on board oh they would they would so my only concern and it is only a small one is that you know we have at this point put in a lot of sports that have you know actual governing bodies something that this sport probably lacks like is there something like is this something we say to the historic footballers that we say to them like look we'd love you to be involved in LA could you spend the next seven years could you spend these years just working on a more robust governance and framework you know I'm just concerned we're not ready for it just yet we'll work on it it'd be it could be like it could be an exhibition sport. I'd be all up for that. But I don't know if you've thought through this enough, you know, the actual practicalities of this and stuff. But look, look, we'll put it in. We'll put it in. You know that I'm a huge fan of historic sports with full contact. So and can we have mixed teams, do you think? Oh, we can. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's, yeah, I think I think we can have mixed themes, and and then we have to just figure out. I mean, um, whether because it seems to be a lot of one on one fighting here, like whether it's it's men on men, women on women, or you know, any anyone against anyone. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think it's anyone against anyone. Okay, I like it. I like your I like your yeah. passion for it. Um, so we have another birthday as well on the 9th of July. Uh, another huge listener to the pod, Maeve Clary, and. Once again, I've dived into the uh, Olympedia records and found some interesting birthdays that Maeve shares. And I got, went back right to the first one, the first athlete to compete in the Games uh, with that birthday. And that's Gaston Saint-Paul de Sinchai, perhaps, <laughs> from, <laughs> from Belgium, born 9th of July, 1854. Ooh. Uh, Gaston competed in the equestrian driving at the 1900 Paris Olympics. He was born in Belgium and was a Belgian citizen his entire life. He did compete for a French club in Paris 
And I'm sure you'll remember that that was pretty much the case with everything in those games. They were basically all living in Paris. <laughs> so he competed for a French club, uh, Cercle de l'Union Artistique of Paris. He was the granduncle of Henri Achille Fould, who competed in the bobsledding for France at the 1948 Saint Moritz Winter Olympics. So that's the very first one. And then I went for the one with the best name. This athlete was also born on the 9th of July in 1936 and competed in 64. For Chinese Taipei, finishing 21st in the light heavyweight weightlifting, his name, Cheng Cheng Chung. <laughs> Chen Cheng Chung, Gaston Saint-Paul de Sinchai, and Maeve Nicleric, happy birthday to all of you. Happy birthday, Maeve. We're going to Mexico next, um, assuming we survive this Tokyo recording and survive Tokyo 2021, and I suppose just survive generally. Next Olympopod, whenever that might be, uh, we will be reading some fan mail because we've now had some fan mail. So, you know, you have some time over the Olympics to send in supplementary fan mail uh, to olympopod at gmail.com. Send it in there and we will endeavor to give you a shout out. Thank you to everyone's patience with us over the last few weeks. We will be back soon, probably. Hey, whoa. I'll see you in 1968. Goodbye. Bye. Enjoy the Olympics. Bye.